that was just meant to wet your whistle a little bit. Uh, we continue our uh, series this summer with the songs we sing, and we took submissions, and this is the one I pulled uh, for this week, which is about Mr. Jones. And I want to tell Mr. Jones to widen his gaze. Why don't you pray with me? God, we're your people. As we come to you together today, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Mr. Jones. In 1993, with the aid of MTV and some dreadlocks that looked a bit too short, a new band burst onto the scene with their song, Mr. Jones, and this band was known as the Counting Crows, and they're still around today. I've actually been fortunate enough to see them in concert. Now, there's a lot in this song, if we were to dig, that you could mine. There are several universal truths present in it, certainly things that would connect with each of us in some way, but I want to focus a little bit on the fact that this is mainly a narrative song. See, this song got popular on the radio. In fact, you couldn't get any of the songs that were released on the radio by the Counting Crows from their album, August and Everything After. You couldn't get them as singles. You couldn't buy a single of any of these songs. It was actually a strategy that was employed to boost record sales. And the strategy worked because that record sat near the top of the charts in the top 10 for the following year. Now, as the song got more radio play, as will happen with songs, there began speculation, began to become speculation about what does it mean? What's he talking about? Is it a metaphor? Is it him? Who is Maria? Right? There are all these things that are happening and Adam Duritz, who fronts the band and who wore the aforementioned two short dreadlocks, was interviewed and he finally got frustrated and said, you know, it's really what it is. There's no deeper meaning. We were sitting at this place and I wished I had the confidence to go up and talk to a girl. And I thought, if I was famous or special, or people knew who I was, then it wouldn't be that hard. Maybe I would have the confidence to do that. Or maybe I wouldn't even have to go talk to the girl. The girl would come talk to me. And this turned out to be true for Adam Duritz as he began dating celebrities. Um, in fact, he dated two of the cast of Friends, um, if you don't know. Um, and he wanted to have confidence. And so, I think that this is kind of summarized, or at least where I'm going with this this morning, is summarized in the first chorus, and we're gonna play that right now, and apologies ahead of time for the sharp cut at the end.
When everybody loves you, you can never be lonely. Now, in the last chorus of the song, one of the lines is, when I look at the television, I want to see me staring right back at me. And Adam Duritz, as I pointed out, eventually got his wish. But what he didn't know was that this was going to change him. Because as the song is performed live later on, he actually changes and adds lyrics to say that when everybody loves you, it's just about as messed up as you can be. In fact, the song becomes uh, performed in a way where it carries these melancholy tones, almost like a, like a dirge. It's very, it's very sad, and you get the sense that that's what's going on, because Adam didn't realize what would happen once he got his wish. He might have more confidence. It happened, right? Everybody knew him. Well, mostly everybody knew him. If you don't, I'm sorry. That's just how it goes this morning. But he wanted everyone to know him. But he didn't know what would come with it because what you focus on also determines what you miss. And he didn't have a wide enough gaze to recognize that that wasn't going to solve his loneliness. But truly, this song is a memorialization of a single experience about a moment in time while there are other universal things present. In fact, we've all had those times, right, where there's a moment that if we could memorialize it, if we could stop time and pause it, we would. I don't know about you, but there are some kids I've seen grown up over the years that as I've seen them growing, I wish that I could have put a brick on their heads to stop them from getting taller so that I could hold them in that space and time to hold on to those memories. We'd laminate those experiences if we could, and we'd carry them in our pockets everywhere. In fact, some of you probably still do that. In our scripture today, on top of the mountain, Peter has the same impulse that we do when it comes to these moments. He wants to hold on to the moment. And it makes sense that Peter has this impulse because Peter is what many biblical scholars refer to as the everyman of the gospels, or more properly, the every person. Peter represents us. He says what we would say and he does what we would do. He is us. And we see this in his impulse, right? And the couple of things I'd like to spend some time talking to you about today are Peter's impulse and Jesus' response to Peter. Now just to refresh, Jesus has hiked these disciples to the top of a mountain, at which point he's transformed before their very eyes, and they're getting to see who Jesus really is. We call this moment the moment of transfiguration because Jesus is changed right in front of them. Jesus begins to shine brightly, and I'm going to paraphrase here. His garments are so dazzling white that even ultra-tide could not have gotten them this clean. The original language of the scripture implies that looking at Jesus in this moment would have been like looking directly at the sun. And then Moses and Elijah show up, and the three of them begin to have some kind of conversation. 
So Jesus is transfigured before them. And because Peter is so stunned, he says, Rabbi, this is so great. We should create shelters for you and seal this moment forever. Can you imagine what this must have been like for Peter? The scriptures tell us that just a week before, Peter identified Jesus as the Christ, the promised Messiah. And here up on this mountaintop, he is having his assertion confirmed before his very eyes. And his impulse in this moment is probably the same impulse that I imagine we might have. I knew it! I called it first! I said he was the Messiah before any of you did! And Peter probably thought, this moment has just given me proof. And not only do I have proof, but all of this is too beautiful to just let it pass. We have to somehow take this moment and seal it. We have to memorialize this. We have to tell everyone about it. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He was talking to Moses and Elijah. We can't just let this pass. Let us build you a shelter here so that others might come and experience this. To which Jesus says, absolutely nothing. Jesus doesn't even dignify Peter's outburst with a response. But why not? I believe that we find the answer just prior to this event. This moment at the end of the eighth chapter of Mark. Follow along with me now. Now, before I read this, keep in mind that in the passage immediately before this one I'm about to read, that Peter has, as I've already pointed out, identified Jesus as the promised Messiah, as the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Mark chapter 8, Then Jesus began to teach his disciples, The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts, and be killed, and then, after three days, rise from the dead. He said this plainly. But Peter took hold of Jesus and, scolding him, began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, then sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. Now back to the mountain. I believe that Jesus ignores Peter on the mountain because he wasn't going to play into their conception of what his kingdom should look like. You see, many of them wanted a Messiah that was going to conquer Rome, that was going to set them free from their oppressors. They weren't yet able to see that the reality that Jesus was proclaiming is one that exists outside the realms of our normal structures and thinking patterns. In fact, this kingdom is upside down. Just consider it for a moment. The reality that Jesus speaks about, the reality that Jesus proclaims in his ministry is one where if someone hits you in the face, you don't hit them back, but instead invite them to hit you again. If someone asks for the coat you're wearing, you give it to them and you give them the shirt off your back too. If someone has wronged you, you must find a way to love them, even if it is from afar. Don't accumulate too much because it's all temporary anyway. If you're going to help people, then help people. 
but don't tell anyone. If you want to gain life, you must willingly give yours up for others in the same way that he did for us. You see, I think that Jesus doesn't acknowledge Peter's suggestion because he knows that if he does, they will never understand what it means to take up their cross daily. He doesn't answer Peter because if he does, Peter still won't get it. Jesus has already had to rebuke Peter, and Peter has just suggested that they stay in this place, in this moment forever. But now, we find ourselves in a predicament because Peter is us. Peter's us. Because if we're honest, sometimes we all get so caught up in preserving moments, moments that are good, moments where we've experienced God, moments that are worth remembering, because like he did on the mountain, somehow God broke into this time-space continuum as we understand it and gets involved in our lives. Sometimes we get so caught up in a future vision like Adam Duritz, that we fail to see the effect that it will have on our lives. And it's possible to get so caught up in these moments and wanting to live in them forever that we forget to be present to the other things happening around us. That there are people at the base of the mountain with issues that are seeking Jesus out. Because the scriptures tell us that when they came down off the mountain, that the crowds were there waiting for him. They had come to him for help, for healing, and for teaching. But if Jesus had listened to Peter, if Jesus had listened to us, he would still be on the mountain. We try so hard to keep things the way they are, or to have a vision realized that we can forget that there are people all around us who need help, healing, and teaching. Because the thing you can't lose track of at any moment is that as Christians, we're servants. We're to take what we gain from these moments and leverage it for our ongoing participation in God's story in the kingdom that Jesus proclaims. And if my own experience is any indicator, when we do that, when we do what Jesus asks of us, when we deny ourselves, when we give ourselves a way to help, heal, and teach, we are helped, healed, and taught ourselves. It's easy to get stuck in moments or in future visions because what we focus on determines what we miss. But I have great hope, and that hope is because of you the body of Christ, and no surprise, coming from the youth pastor, in particular, young people. In the past decades, I have witnessed hundreds of young people who want to help, heal, and teach, and I've witnessed the same from the adults around them and the adults in the congregations that have supported them. And I've been struck by, repeatedly, and re-energized by youth and young people who are less interested in preserving moments than they are about living in the reality that Jesus has proclaimed. For many years, I attended a senior high midwinter camp with youth just north of Lakey, Texas, and the place is gorgeous. If you've never been there, you should go. 
This camp is the closest thing to Colorado I've ever seen in Texas. By the way, I'm convinced that God lives somewhere in Rocky Mountain National Park. Just. This campsite is down in a canyon, and the Frio River runs by the campsite, and it's amazing. You look across the river, you can see the walls of the canyon, and you can see the many, many beautiful layers in the rock, and the picture that you see there, it's just short. Imagine that going up for a while. And I don't know about you, but it's in settings like that that I am reminded of just how present God is in our world. And when I was there, each day I would get up in the morning and to make the walk to breakfast, and I went out of my way to take the time to walk along the river and just gaze at the beauty of it all. And every time I did that, I found myself saying, good morning, God. Thanks. And throughout those camps, the edge of the river is a place where I would find myself spending time in prayer. And when I was praying, I loved to gaze at the cliffs of the canyon. And one day when I was praying, it hit me that a layer in the wall of the canyon represents a period in time, a moment, if you will, that's been carved out and shaped by the river that runs alongside it. And it strikes me that just like it's easy to get caught up in a moment, it's possible to get caught up in the beauty of the layers of that canyon and miss the power of the river. Those layers didn't happen all on their own. They were carved out by rushing, churning, deep water. And as I've watched young people and adults and people in congregations in the last few decades worship with a commitment and abandon that I lack words to describe. I was especially encouraged one year at a summer camp when one night in worship, we were being led in a song. And even when the worship leader stopped playing, the entire room kept singing because they were interested in worshiping God. And it didn't matter if the guitar or anything else was playing. They weren't going to stop singing their praise to God until they decided to. And I tell that story to remind us all that both our present and our future as the church is full of promise. And even though moments like these and future moments are ones we cherish, I know from my time with you that you don't just want to live on the mountain. Your people, we are people who want to help those at the bottom who need to be healed. You've all shown me that in moments like that. That even though you can see the beauty in the layers of the canyon, you're much more interested in the power of the river. And because I believe that, because I believe that you're more interested in Jesus and the reality that he proclaimed than you are in all, the two, in all the other things, there are two important things I want to challenge you to do very quickly. And the first one is this, and we talked about it in Sunday school this morning, practice discernment. This is one of the most important things you can do as a follower of Jesus. 
Ask questions. Know your story. Does this fit with God's story in the scriptures? Does this help me participate more fully in a life with God? Does this move forward the cause of love, grace, and redemption in the world? Have I really stopped to listen to what God might be saying through the scriptures, through others, through our tradition, through reason, and through our own gifts and experiences? Have I looked closely at how God may be at work in any given situation? The art of discernment takes practice, so you must find ways to practice. If you ever want to practice with us, join us for God in the movies sometime, because that's what we do. If you want to get good at discernment, you have to practice. The second thing I want to suggest is practice caring for yourself. This is one of the most important things you can do for yourself as a follower of Jesus. I have a sign on one of my bulletin boards that I see often, and it says, it's a note I wrote to myself, and it says, if I hope to have the impact I want to have, I must first tend to my own soul. I must learn to be who God calls me to be first. I have to be honest with you, most of the time, I do a terrible job at that. I'm awful at it. I imagine many of you are too, but... Stats will show, and you could ask just about any clergy person or professional ministry person, that we're horrible at taking Sabbath. It's why you probably don't hear a lot of sermons on it. Because we're not practicing it ourselves. And if we're to be our best, we have to be who Jesus is calling us to be. Because he has work for us to do. There are people at the bottom of the mountain The people who we're leading and caring for will not get our best if we don't find a way to stop, refresh, and listen to what God's saying to us. So my challenge to you today is this. Discern. Listen. Stop. Be still. Care for your own soul. And then... You could tell us about the impact you're going to have on the world through your participation in God's story because you've widened your gaze, because you've pulled back so you don't miss the consequences that could come along with something you've wished for, or we've had one another to help each other through the process. Discern, listen, stop, care for your own soul. Amen.